Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. Hey, let me tell you something. We start out with, with just saying this, and then we'll build off of it. Jesus Christ is coming back. Jesus Christ will be back. Now let's build off that. So Peter, we're in 2 Peter, if you're new with us, and, and we've been in 1 Peter, now 2 Peter, we're getting ready to finish. Peter met Jesus as a, a young man. Jesus literally handpicked him to to be personally mentored in the course of three years. And then beyond the training that you got from Jesus, he was, he was close and he was personal friends with Jesus. He's also the guy that betrayed Jesus, denied Jesus when Jesus needed him the most. And when Jesus went to the cross, Peter denied him. So, so he did, said he didn't even know Jesus, but Jesus chased him and pursued him, forgave him, restored him. And the truth is, what Jesus does for all of us who surrender to him, that's what he does to us, just what he did to Peter. We may have messed up, we may have had times in our life where we denied Christ, and he just keeps pursuing us and hounding us, and he, his goal is to restore us. So if Jesus could do it for Peter, he can definitely do it for all of us. And my favorite aspect of Peter's story is when he gets reinstated. It's my favorite, it's my favorite part of all, all the different things that are recorded about Peter's life. That one's the best, where Jesus comes and, and personally reinstates him. Now, even after getting reinstated, he's still Peter, right? <laughs> life, we, we see Peter's life, we we see uh, that he, he messes up a few times even after that because we're all human. Everybody does that, including Peter. And what I love about right now is, is he's, he's lived his life. He's an old man at this point. And we get this glimpse into Pastor Peter's life. And we see this spiritual father side. He's going to write his final farewell. He's going to write his final address to the church family. And he does it from a prison. History tells us that not, not long after he wrote this, he was tortured and then he was finally killed. And so at this point that he's writing this, he knows, he's very aware that his finish line is on the horizon. His life is nearing the end. And, and so as we approach chapter three, I want you to keep that in mind. I want you, to, want you to look at this and read this like it was coming from a father to a family. There you guys are. Hey, look at that. Beautiful people. All right. So... I want you to get that. It's coming from a father to a family. Peter wants his love to be known and he wants his faith, the faithfulness of God's word to be emphasized. Peter finished well. He finished well. It doesn't matter where you're at today. It doesn't matter where you begin. You may trip up at times. You may be in a season right now where your life looks pretty messy because you made some stupid decisions. But hear me out. What matters is how you finish, okay? 
you're here today and your life is a mess, the story does not have to end that way. You can still finish strong. And this is where we find Peter today. He finished well. He finished well. Will Rogers said that everybody is ignorant only on different subjects. <laughs> you got it right, Will. He nailed it. So true. And yet, this is, this is not the whole story because there's more than one kind of ignorance, right? Some people are ignorant because of a lack of opportunity to learn. Maybe even some people are ignorant because of a lack of a, an ability to learn. And then some are what Peter would call here in chapter 3, verse 5. You see, he says, deliberately overlook, or in some translations, they are willingly ignorant. Alfred Whitehead said this, not ignorance, but ignorance of ignorance is the death of knowledge. Two powerful quotes there. Now, you have to know this as we approach this text. Peter has already dealt with the character and the conduct of these false teachers in chapter 2. And now he's going to kind of directly go after their false teaching, what they're teaching. In chapter 1, Peter was clear where he stands when it comes to the return of Jesus. All throughout scripture, we see that Jesus is coming back, Right? This is one of the truths that these false teachers question. Jesus isn't coming back. Actually, they scoffed at the idea of Jesus coming back. They laughed at the thought that Jesus was coming back, and especially the idea that he was coming back to judge the world. And again, all throughout his letter, he's emphasized the importance of knowing God's word. We've talked about that. How do young Christians stop being leaves blown around by cultural and theological winds? The answer is found in Ephesians, right? Chapter 4, verse 13. It says, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Knowledge that they experience, not as the opinion of man, but as the word of of God. That's found in one place, right? You want the knowledge of God, you've got to go to his word. Amen? So in chapter 1, he tells us to stand in holiness. In chapter 2, he tells us to stand against heresy. And now in chapter 3, he's going to tell us to stand in hope. Why? Because he said, I will be back. That wasn't Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay? It wasn't a catchphrase that he, he made popular. Jesus said it before Arnold did. All right, Jesus Christ, he's coming back. He made the, that promise to his, to his followers. The Bible's clear that Jesus is coming back again. This, this is and it has been the great hope. This has been the hope of the church for the last 2,000 years. We're expecting, anticipating, looking for. We can't wait for that event to happen. He came once to deal with sin. He's gonna come back again and finish what he started. And he's going to fix all injustices that this world has held and committed for thousands of years. The theme of the return of Christ is all throughout the Bible. In fact, next to faith, it's the most discussed topic in the Bible. 1,840 times it's spoken about or alluded to. One verse out of every 30 verses speaks of the second coming of Jesus. That means that one-fifth of the entire Bible deals with either the end of days or the second coming of Jesus. For every one verse that speaks about his first coming, there are eight that speak about his second coming. For every one verse that speaks about his atonement, there are two verses that speak about his second coming. 21 times Jesus personally referred to it and 50 times we're told to be ready for it. We need to understand this, that when Jesus makes good on this promise, he will fulfill it. 
right? When Jesus makes a promise, I said that wrong. When Jesus makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. He'll make good on his promise. There we go. I got it. Yeah. And here's what we need to understand. It's not going to be Hollywood science fiction. He won't be acting. It's going to be real, physical. It's going to be a catastrophic event. And when it happens, he will destroy the world as we know it. And he will bring judgment against those who have opposed him. This is a hard, this is a hard passage to preach. <laughs> but it's the truth. I want to see your face because I want you to know I love you. God knew the longer Jesus tarries, the greater chance his followers will have of being discouraged. The more discouraged they become, the greater chance they're going to have of falling prey to false teachers. You see that. We've, we've been on that theme, haven't we, in Second Peter. False teachers who scoff at his return. We know Jesus is coming back, and now in the next 10 verses, Peter's going to tell his believers that we can count on God's promise in the face of all the ridicule we get from this world because God's word says it, God's enemies scoff at it, and God's nature supports it. Would you pray with me before we get into the text? Father God, I pray right now that the Holy Spirit would fall fresh on us as we look at your word. God, we're about to jump into your word, and I pray that your word would come into us. God, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, there would be a transformative power that would illuminate within us so that we could be transformed. Would you move us and motivate us, fix us, and change us? We pray that you would be God in the midst of this place right now. I want you, God, to establish yourself in the hearts of all of those people that are here today, all of those people that are watching online. I want you to be our God. So establish your presence in the midst of this place right now. And I thank you because you are more than enough for whatever storm we face. Just like Abigail said in worship, whatever we face, you're bigger. And I thank you for that. And I, I just, I bless you. Move in this service, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's get to work. Are you ready? Let's get at it. Second Peter chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 2 with me. Here's why we can stand in, in hope concerning the second come of, coming of Jesus. Because God's word says it, okay? Look with me. Verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Let's pause for a moment. Love how Peter starts this out. Love it. He uses the word beloved five times in chapter three. Beloved comes from the word agape in the original Greek. It's related to the Greek word for selfless, sacrificial love. Now Peter is being very deliberate in using this word. He's showing the love that Peter has for these people, but it also shows them how God views them, how God views us today, right? When you and I read this today, we are God's beloved. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and made him the Lord of your life, you are beloved. Beloved. It's an important lesson to learn here, though. Before I even go further, there's, there's some spiritual leadership lessons here. I'm going to call it Spiritual Leadership 101. Are you ready? There's a lot packed into this and even this title. Peter tells us to connect before you correct. Listen to me, church. Peter, Peter shows us that we need to connect before we correct. He starts out relationally here by calling them his beloved. So he starts with what's important and then he gives them instruction. You got to connect with someone before you can correct somebody. All right? You want to really help someone, well, put in the time. We don't, we don't open people's ears until we open their heart. Please see 
that they're here in this text and try to apply this truth to your life. If you really want to help somebody in their spiritual life, you need to connect with them. It does no good when somebody who's more mature in their faith just goes around and points the finger and corrects people all the time. It doesn't do any good. You want to really see life change, you've gotta put in the time and you've gotta connect with people. Amen? So connect before you correct, real easy, right? All right, continuing. So this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, I grew up in the West Coast, and in the West Coast, we love rodeos, okay? In fact, I even heard that Lisa, Pastor Enos's wife, was a rodeo girl. I don't know if there's truth to it or not, but maybe. I, she's shaking her head, but... But still, now I loved rodeos and there may or may not be out there somewhere a few pictures of your pastor wearing a cowboy hat, wranglers and cowboy boots and a belt buckle. (laughs) We like our rodeos in the West Coast. Then I lived in Prescott, Arizona. And if you know your rodeo history, they are home of the oldest rodeo in America. Now, if you know rodeos, it's the bull riders who are the tough guys, right? They're, they're the tough guys. They're, they're the real men. I mean, that's debatable to some because as my wife says, she says, I don't understand why anybody would want to get on an angry bull and try to ride it. And I said, Liz, you're telling me if I didn't ride a bull for 10 seconds, you wouldn't like it. If I could ride, you wouldn't look at me like more of a man and she's just shaking her head, no. <laughs> she goes, I think a real man uses his brain and if you used your brain, you wouldn't get on a bull. Maybe, maybe Liz has a point, but I love rodeos, okay? Now, the rider has to stay on top of this bucking bull by holding on to the bull rope with one hand without touching the bull or himself with his free hand. And if this isn't crazy already, the rope's wrapped around the chest of the bull directly behind the bull's front legs. So the bull is mad, agitated, and angry. And if the cowboy can do it all for eight seconds, then it's a qualified ride. If he gets bucked off before eight seconds, it's a no score. I love the rodeo. I love it. Okay, so, so here's, the, here's the whole point. Hang on to that rope really, really tightly and don't let go. <laughs> This is what Peter starts out with. He says, listen, believers, hold on tightly and don't lose grip on what God says when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ. Hold on to it tightly because if you do, it's gonna have devastating results. Much worse than falling off a bull even. Much worse than even getting gored by a bull. It's gonna have devastating results in your life if you lose grip of the fact of the reality that Jesus Christ is coming back. He says, hold tightly to what you've been taught. Now, these first two verses, they're soaked, they're drenched, they're saturated with one thing, the importance of remembering. He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Some translations say this, stimulate your thinking. So it carries the idea of waking you up. How many of you guys have had the job of waking people up in the morning? Yeah, that's my job in the Hanson home. I get to go wake up the kids. Now Liz will argue and says she wakes up now before me. And there's some truth to that. As, she, as we've become parents, she, she is now a morning person. But when we first got married and I had to go wake up Liz for like her job or, or for even a school a class or what, it was like waking up a bear from hibernation. Like my wife is the sweetest person in the world. She is so kind, so gentle, but do not wake her up from sleep. 
because you wake the bear, you're going to pay for it. All my kids have the same thing. I've got to wake up my kids in the morning for school, and it's the hardest job ever. Asher is just, he's still sleeping 30 minutes after I woke, woke him up. In fact, the other day last year when he was getting ready for school, I kept telling Liz, I, it takes at least 30, 45 minutes for him to wake up and understand that he's up and not sleeping. She says, no, that's not true. I, I tested my theory. So I, I told Asher to get ready for school on his own. Liz said, he can do it. Okay, let's try this. And so I come, I get, call the kids down from the stairs. It's the middle of winter. Asher walks out in his pants. Thank God he got those on. No shoes, no socks, no shirt, no backpack, no lunch pail. He walks up to my car and I said, we're going to school. He goes, I know. <laughs> well, get ready. I am ready. No, you're not. You're missing your shirt. You're missing your shoes. You're mi he is so hard to get up. Have you ever had to wake somebody up who's really difficult? They have a difficult time waking up. It's, it's horrible. It's torture. Okay, this is kind of the idea that Peter's talking about. Now think about how lethargic we are when we first wake up. We move slower, right? We think, now think about the language Peter's using here spiritually. He wants us to wake up. Now think of all the things in our life that we plug in for power, okay? Right? We plug in our phones, our computers, our iPads, our Tesla. Just kidding. I don't have a, I don't have a Tesla. But I do have to put gas into my car, right? And we do this because if we don't, they, they lose power and they shut off. Now, that's what happens to your soul when you don't experience God's presence through prayer and his word with God's people. Hear me? Peter says, wake up and wake up to the fact that Jesus is coming back and he's going to come back soon. He's coming back. Well, some of you are like, duh, Peter. We know it. Jesus is coming back. I mean, why do we need to be reminded of this? Most believers are probably thinking, we know he's coming back. Why do you, why do you have to write not just one letter, but two letters that remind us about this fact? Why do we need to wake up to this? Why do we need to remember this? Well, you've got to know, Peter's been battling false teachers who showed up and they came from the church. The church, he's not writing to people outside the church. False teachers didn't come from outside the church. They came from within the church. They arose from within the body. And Peter's condemned their, their conduct and their character. Chapter two contains some of the most severe words in the Bible against these snakes who bring in false teaching. For those of you, there's this fine line of being, being uh merciful and graceful and, and knowing when to draw a line in the sand as a leader. Peter used some of the most severe words in all the Bible when it came to these false teachers. But now he shifts his focus to contradicting the teachings. He's very focused on coming after this one belief that Jesus isn't gonna come back. And here's why he does this, because he knows very well that if someone can be convinced that Jesus won't return, he's not gonna return to judge the world of sin, it's gonna be real easy for somebody to start living a life however they want. If there's one thing, listen to me clearly, if there's one thing that characterizes a fake, it's their immoral lifestyle. A fake is someone who's driven by their own desires, their own self-interest, and, and here's the truth, that's totally, it contradicts the fruit of the Spirit. It contradicts the Word of the God. It contradicts how the Bible describes a true, authentic, genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And what is the point of just knowing important doctrines, right? What's the point of just knowing it? Peter's telling us to remember. He wants our thinking to be clear, logical, consistent, morally pure. That's the idea behind the language he's using. What good is it just to know important scriptural truths? 
It's of absolutely no use to learn new truths or even recall previously known truths if neither is going to contribute to the transformation of our lives. It's so important that we get this. He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind. The adjective sincere signifies, like I said earlier, that which is pure, right, and good. Now, qualifying the noun mind, that suggests the idea of a healthy way of thinking. But it's speaking more than just a mental process. It involves the ability to discern spiritual truth and apply it to your life. When he says, by way of reminder, that's the process that happens through the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to take what we're learning in this Bible, apply these truths to our everyday life, our everyday struggles that we encounter. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. All of that's packed into what Peter just said. Peter's primary concern here in 2 Peter is to present the return of Jesus in the future as an encouragement towards holy living right now. Right now. Okay? Isn't that something? That's supposed to change the way you live your life. It's supposed to encourage you to live a holy life right now. I love how Adrian Rogers says this, the same Jesus who turned water into wine can transform your home, your life, your family, and your future. He's still in the miracle working business and his business is the business of transformation. Peter wants you to live a holy and righteous life right now. He's told us why we need to remember. Now he's gonna tell us what we need to remember. Look at verse two, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. So where do we as Christians take our stand? The word of God. It's where we take our stand. We take our stand in the Bible. You remember that song when you were little, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. Yeah, come on, that's not just for kids, that's for adults. Abigail, can you sing that after church, the B-I-B-L-E? We take our stand in the Bible. How do I know Jesus Christ is coming back? Because the Old Testament prophets predicted it. The New Testament apostles spoke about it. It's in the word of God, it's gonna happen. Now, I wish I had more time to go into all of this, but I'm just gonna tell you, there's, there's a lot of people out there who will say this is not a reliable book. And I have a few books that I would recommend. The Evidence Man's a Verdict by Josh McDowell is an incredible book. There's another book written by Lee Strobel, who was an atheist. I'm going to talk about him in a little bit. And he went on a quest to disprove that Jesus was who he said he was and that you, that, that you couldn't rely on the Bible. It's not historically accurate. And then what happens? He comes to know Jesus. He's got an incredible testimony. But I want to I just talk about some of the Old Testament prophets or, and some of their predictions. Did you know that the Old Testament has over 400 prophecies about the coming Messiah? Over 400. And, and here's what's crazy is Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled every one of them. Now, the odds of that happening, one single man fulfilling every prediction about the coming Messiah, the coming Savior of the world, is incredible. There was a professor by the name of Peter Stoner who worked with 600 students to figure out what the probability would be of just eight, just eight of, over, uh, of the over 400 prophecies being fulfilled in any one person who had lived up to that present time. And the result was this. Are you ready? It would be one in 100 quadrillion. So Lee Strobel, who's an atheist turned Christian, he performed some calculations to try to figure out what in the world this would look like in real life. Listen to what he said. I imagine the entire world being covered with white tile that was one and a half inches square, every bit dry land on the planet with one bottom of just one tile painted red. Then I pictured a person being allowed to wander for a lifetime around all seven continents. 
He would be permitted to bend down only one time to pick up a piece of tile. What are the odds it would be the one tile whose reverse side was painted red? The odds would be the same as just eight out of the Old Testament prophecies coming true in any one person throughout history. The facts are there, people. I don't have time to get into it at all. I wish I did, but the facts are there. If you study and you research, you're going to see that the Bible really is reliable and Jesus Christ was really who he said he was. Okay, so Peter tells us, yeah, that's worth giving. Yeah, you can, yeah. Peter tells us we can stand in hope in light of Jesus coming back because God's word says it. I could have probably spent 45 minutes and made this a sermon alone. But I didn't. We'll get back to it, I promise. Then in verses three through four, now he's gonna tell us because God's enemies scoff at it. Look with me, verse, verses three. It says, knowing this first of all, or preeminently, this is not chronologically, but it's a matter of importance. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Here's what's crazy. This has always been a theme in the Bible. It's not like it's something new. In fact, did you know that in Isaiah chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 17, Ezekiel chapter 12, Malachi chapter 2, they all talk about the response of the unbelieving world in regards of mocking or scoffing. The Bible from the very beginning records scoffers. So they really shouldn't come as a surprise to us. And some of you are asking, what in the world does a scoffer even mean? That's what Asher asked me when we read this verse. What is a scoffer? (laughs) That's a good question, Asher. There's someone who treats lightly what should be taken seriously. Okay? There are times that I have shared the gospel and I've had somebody scoff at me. I'm sure everybody in here can relate to that. I... One of the things I love about new believers is they're so excited to share with their unsaved friends and family, and there's just they go out and share with everyone, whether they're going through a drive-through or they're walking the aisles at Walmart, and they quickly discover that they not everybody is going to respond the way that maybe they had hoped or would liked, and and they get teased, ridiculed, and and scoffed. Just ask any student that goes to one of our universities, one of our secular universities here in America, if if they went and said they believe in God in, in some of their classrooms if they, they don't get scoffed. It happens. All of us have been there, right? The world will try and intimidate you. That's mocking. That's scoffing language. It's the language of the scoffer. Do you really believe in that book, 2,000 years old, and you believe in it? it do you really think there's a God out there? I mean, they have, they'll, they'll ridicule you. They'll tease you. They'll poke fun at you. Peter says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Look at that last part, following their own sinful desires. They have an agenda here, okay? The bottom line is that they deny the return of Jesus in order to indulge their own sinful lifestyles so that they don't have to face any consequences, or at least that's what they think. And I want you to take note of something. They don't scoff at the Lord's return because they're really, really, really smart, okay? Regardless of their intelligence, what's really happening here is spiritual warfare. It's what's really happening, Peter says they follow their own sinful desires. He later, later says in, in uh, verse 5 that they deliberately overlook all of these indicators that Jesus is going to come back. And then in verse 7, he calls them ungodly. In verse 16, he calls them untaught and unstable. And in verse 17, he calls them lawless. All right, Peter isn't describing people who are smarter or more rational than the followers of Jesus. He's describing someone who's been deceived by the enemy and they're following their own passions and their own sinful desires. 
They're cynics who practice self-indulgence. They, they oppose God's judgment against their own sinful lifestyle. And here's what's really interesting about this. Peter connects two really important themes. False teachers deny the return of Jesus and their contempt of holiness. The fact that these two are linked, it, it shouldn't surprise us. That's their agenda. And then in verse 4, look with me. In verse 4, you get to see their argument. In verse 4, Peter lets them make their case. It says, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, what's amazing about this verse is that it's a very modern argument for rejecting supernatural bodily second coming of Jesus Christ. Still, to this day, this is the argument people are, 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 are using. Okay, it simply says the laws of nature are constant. They're unchanging. The sun's come up. The sun's gone down. The seasons have followed each other. The tides have risen and fallen for thousands of years in perfect order. So we really should expect this for the future. And any thought, any thought that the sky might be rolled up like a scroll and the earth purged with global fiery judgment by the return of Jesus is absolutely ridiculous. It's their argument. And, and honestly, it's still today pretty much the position of modern science. Unfortunately, it's not just science, though. Unfortunately, there are hundreds of pastors and theologians in churches and seminaries today who reject a physical second coming and future judgment for the same reason. Skeptics today will use talk about the chain of cause and effect in a closed universe governed by natural laws where miracles almost by definition cannot happen. Okay? The laws of nature, we are told, disprove any doctrine of divine intervention that supposedly will wind up the course of history. This is a philosophy that's very popular today. Things are moving steadily and slowly. And they always have been and they always will be. But here's, here's why this, this is a wrong view of the world. Because it has a person who measures all of history, which they haven't lived through. They measure all of history even though they've only lived through a little tiny part of time. They're willing to make judgment on all of history based on what they, they themselves only have observed. All things continue. Jesus isn't coming back because he never really did come back. That sort of saying, you know. It's kind of like saying this, I'll never die because I've never died. When someone is willing to lie, it becomes impossible to have a reasonable debate or even a conversation with a person. I love when, I've watched Christian debates before where I love, maybe it's encouraged my faith and I'm watching, but I've never, ever, ever in my entire life seen a Christian apologist debate with somebody who's actually convinced the person they're debating with. No matter how good the argument it is, I've never, ever seen it make a lick of a difference with the person they're debating. Now it encourages believers a lot of times because we're like, wow, that's good, that's good. I've never looked at it from that angle. That's really good. But I've never seen it convince the one they're debating with. When someone's willing to lie, it becomes absolutely impossible to have a reasonable debate. Liars are interested in affirming whatever, uh, whatever they, their, first their purpose. Therefore, the truth has absolutely no value to them. Because they can't disprove God's truth, they resort to mocking and scoffing it. I'm telling you, just look at the news today. There's so many people out there who mock our belief, mock our religion, mock our faith. They exist, they're out there. Now, in verses five through seven, he's gonna go, go at it from God's nature, supports it. So in all of verses five through 
10, he's gonna tell us God's nature supports it. So follow with me, verse five, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God and that by, by means of these, the world that then existed was deloged with water and perished, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, despite the mocking, despite the ridicule, Peter believes in the trustworthiness of the word of God. He demonstrates that by using the same word to contradict the scoffers. He begins his argument by pointing out how conveniently those that ridicule deliberately overlook that long ago through God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. God was at work even before Adam and Eve came into being. It was God who prepared the world for them and their descendants. And after some time, the world became so corrupt that God decided to flood the world in judgment. That's what verse six is referring to. And these false teachers had said nothing had changed. They were ignoring the story. Peter's saying, you're, you're ignoring the story. You're ignoring the truth. Now, some of you might be thinking, what in the world does all this have to do with me? First, I want you to understand this. These verses are a warning to us not to deny biblical narrative. Okay? Secondly, we should be aware that every time we sin, and we continue to sin, knowing that our actions are evil, we're challenging the authority of God's word. Every time you deliberately do something that you know is wrong, you are challenging the authority of God's word. And listen carefully here. As long as we choose to remain in sin, we're pretty much essentially mocking God's holiness. It's like saying, I know you've revealed yourself and your truth and your word, but I choose to violate it. Or maybe you can think about it like this. I love you, but for now, let me love my sin a little longer. How would I, think about it from this angle. How would a young man feel if he proposed to the woman he loved? And she looked at him and said, yes, I, I'll, I'll marry you, but do I have to give up my other boyfriends? Will you want me back home every night? Do I have to come home every night, or can I still have some fun? What would his reaction be? He'd be hurt. He'd be disappointed. Man, he would be, he would be so shattered and shocked because he ins inspected her, her loyalty. He wanted a true mate for life. Now, what about Jesus, our heavenly bridegroom? Does he deserve less than that? Will he accept sinners if they don't pledge him their loyalty? Think about this. This is important here. Now, after Peter reminds them of the first global judgment, the flood, he then reminds them of the, this next judgment. And it, it won't just be merely global, but it's going to be universal. Both the heavens and the earth will be subject to the final judgment. Now, I'm telling you, without Jesus Christ our Savior, we would not want to be present when this day arrives. It says, by the same word, Peter's warning us that the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Scary passage here. And at the moment, creation is being sustained by God's word. Listen, e even in Hebrews chapter 1-3, look what it says. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But there's going to be a day that's going to come when by that same word... All of creation, heaven and earth, and all who is living in it will be consumed by fire. 
Peter says that this will be a day of judgment for the destruction of the ungodly. The world will end and it won't be from an atomic bomb. It's not, it's not humanity that's gonna destroy the world. It's God himself who will cause this destruction and it will be with incredible force. This is a promise that God makes and he makes good on his promises and Peter wants us not to forget this. Peter moves on, on to note that God is timeless in verse eight. Look with me at verse eight. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. There it is again, beloved. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Two qualities here to take note of. First is his appeal for us, believers, not to overlook. Second, he calls us beloved again. Peter's speaking from a sincere heart here, like a spiritual father. He's burdened for our well-being. But Peter puts on the table God's boundless nature in regards to time. The reason he does this is because he knows that people like us would be saying, why is this taking so long for Jesus to come back? Why the delay? 2,000 years ago, he made the promise. Why is it taking so long? And, and honestly, some of us might, yeah, maybe these scoffers are right. Why, why, is, why is Jesus taking so long? But Peter believed Jesus was coming soon. He preached that Jesus was coming soon. He was, but he was wise. He refused to put a date on it. He was, he was willing to live in the tension between the nearness of Jesus coming back and the uncertainty about when it would happen. He was okay knowing that God isn't bound by time like we are, and God relates to time differently than we do. It reminds me of the story of a little boy who was praying, and he, he closed his eyes. He said, Lord, somewhere in your Bible it says that a thousand years is like a day to you. And it also says in your Bible that you own... Uh, that you own a cattle on a thousand hills, or which means like a million billion dollars is like one dollar to you. And then he prayed this, Lord, could I just have one dime? And the Lord spoke to him and said, sure, just a minute. <laughs> why, why the delay? Why, why is God delaying? Well, look at verse, verse nine with me. God is merciful. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I want you to know something. The Lord, he could carry his judgment right now, but he hasn't yet. And that's something we should be happy about. Because there are people who will come to salvation today, maybe even at the end of our service, tomorrow, next month, beyond. The desire that people will come to repentance has delayed his judgment in our favor. It's something that we should, we should be okay with. What detains God's judgment, in other words, is not our good behavior, but his infinite goodness. The Lord's waiting for people to come to repentance. He is delaying his judgment because of his mercy. Don't miss the big picture here. God desires people to repent because the stakes are so high. God doesn't want any to perish. That should change the way that you and I live life, knowing this about the God that we love and serve. I have, I have something in my, my office that I look at all the time. I'd, sometimes I'll tell my staff this. Hell's hot and forever is a long time. That fact should change the way we do life. It should change the way we approach relationships. It should change everything, right? Don't miss the big picture here. Perish. That word typically refers to inter eternal punishment. And here it contrasts with the word repentance, which is necessary for eternal life. You've got to repent. That's what the Bible says. Repent from your sin, you shall have eternal life. Repent. You're sorry enough to stop doing it. You're sorry enough to do whatever you can to stop sinning. That's repentance. All right? And what's at stake here is God's desire for people to be saved from his wrath 
because that results in hell. God doesn't want people in hell. The word, the word wishing here isn't a word indicating mere preference, like I might want a certain present for Christmas. No, instead it expresses a conscious choice in which God desires that not one person would perish under his judgment, but that all would come to repentance. All would experience salvation. And then in verse 10 he finishes with this, God is just. God is just, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I remember being at Central Bible College and we took this class on Peter's epistles and we had to learn about this. And I remember there was somebody who, who had got saved three years prior to coming to Central Bible College, loved Jesus, was so passionate about Jesus, three years in a church, three years in a church. And I remember when we got to study First Peter and we got to this verse, we got to verse 10, he was shocked. He couldn't believe this. He didn't even know that Jesus was coming back again. He thought everybody was just gonna die and they go to heaven. He didn't know about the second coming of Jesus. I thought, how can you sit in church for three years and never hear about the second coming of Jesus or never hear about God's judgment? It was like a shocker to him. I know this, this is tough to preach. This is tough. I mean, it's, it's a lot. I wish I had way more than 45 minutes with you. I wish we were so hungry for God's word that Sunday was just six hours of going through his word. You like that? Next week, we'll start doing it. <laughs> now, here's this phrase we talked about earlier, or, or I didn't, I took it out. I want to talk about it, the day of the Lord. The phrase appears 17 times in the Old Testament, two times in Isaiah, twice in Ezekiel, five times in Joel, three times in Amos, one time in Obadiah, two times in Zephaniah, and one time in Malachi. It also appears four times in the New Testament, one time in the book of Acts, two times in 1 Thessalonians, and once here in 2 Peter. Now, if we add to that list all the occurrences of the similar phrase, the day of the Lord's wrath, then that idea is found about 24 times in the entire Bible with consistency in the way it's described. Man, but when, here's the question some of you are gonna ask, but when's this gonna happen? What's it gonna be like? Well, no one's certain. We only have pieces of the puzzle, and you gotta understand that. But here in verse 10, Peter does give some brief information about how some of these final episodes are gonna play out. Number one, he says he's gonna come like a thief in the night. He will come like a thief. How does a thief come? Well, suddenly and, and by surprise, right? No thief is like, I'm going to go in the middle of the day when they're having coffee at the table. I'm going to try to sneak into the window right there in the kitchen and see if I can. No, that's not what a thief does. A thief comes suddenly and in surprise. He wants to wait. He wants the homeowners to feel safe. He wants the homeowners to not even be aware at all that he's making this plan. Man, a thief could be getting ready right now to break in. This very moment, you have no idea. It's not like the movie Home Alone, okay? Now, you still have some time. Here, here's what's great about this. You still have time, and Peter emphasizes this. You have time right now to give your life to Jesus. It's possible you might only have minutes left before his coming. We don't know. You could leave today, and Jesus might return. He could come in the next few seconds. He could come in the next few minutes. He can come in the next few hours, weeks, months, years. We don't know when he's gonna come, but here's the truth I wanna express to you today. You have time right now to get right with Jesus. You have time right now to get right with him. Because here's the hard truth. Once he comes, you're not gonna have a single second additional, you're not gonna have a single additional second for another opportunity. You won't. This is the time of grace. This is the season of mercy. This is your opportunity right now. 
Matthew 24, verse 42 through 43 says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. You have an opportunity right now. You're not right with Jesus. You can do it today. You can do it at this very moment. Number two, he says the earth is going to be exposed. What what does he mean by exposed? Well, the word seems to allude to the revealing of the deeds of men and women. So it it, it suggests that both the inhabitants of the earth and their deeds are going to be laid bare in God's court. Another scary fact. The entire world is going to pass away. Only man will be left to give an account of himself to his creator. This day is coming. The entire world is going to pass away. And we're all going to give an account to our creator, the judge. Now, no one knows the time of Jesus' return, but everybody is going to know when he returns. Peter makes that very clear. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That word translated dissolves, it also means melt or disintegrate. And when this occurs, there is going to be a great roar, and suddenly everything will be burned. Can you imagine that great roar? Can you imagine when the entire universe implodes, when everything collapses? Can you imagine that roar? Peter wants us to know that when we experience this, when we see this happen, here's his point too, it will be completely fair in light of God's holy justice. Now, we talk a lot about reaching the lost. This is why we're so passionate. I am unapologetic about the Bible. I'm not going to apologize for God. I'm not going to apologize for the word. God is the God of this universe. He's the creator of this universe. This is his word spoken to us. There's just one way to heaven. This is the truth. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to take it to the bank. And I'm going to live my entire life. What so many people want to say, oh, they're so uh, backwards and they're so mean. They push their religion. Look, we do it because I don't want people going to hell. I'm on my way to heaven. I'm going to bring as many people as I can with me. And that's what this church is going to do. We're not going to shy away or back away from preaching hard truths because it's, honestly, it's, it's the, if you look at every revival that's taken place in America, it's not been because they've preached these fluffy messages that make people feel really good. Wow. That would have been bad. <laughs> it's not because we make them feel so comfortable. If you look at every revival in America, or the world for this matter, they preach on sin because it's the conviction of sin that leads people to repentance and it's repentance that leads to a transformed life. That's when you get to experience the victory of Jesus. I'm telling you, if we don't do it, if we don't tell them and they don't hear, they're gonna go to hell. Hell's hot, forever's a long time. Do you see why we do what we do? We've got to preach God's word. It's his word that's gonna bring people. And I tell, look around the world right now. They need Jesus. They've tried it their way. They need Jesus. We need Jesus in New Heights Church. We need Jesus in Fairfield. We need Jesus in Cincinnati. We need Jesus in Ohio. We need Jesus. I'm not ashamed of this. It's a difficult passage to preach, but it's God's truth. And I want you to know I'm looking forward to the return of Jesus. I can't wait when he comes to take us away. I can't wait. So will you pray with me? And, and, and we end today, we're going to end a little different because a lot of uh, people said, are you going to do communion before you preach on judgment and wrath or after? I'm going to do it after. You know why? Because you know what communion is? A call to remembrance. 
It's a call to remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. That's what we're asked to do. And, and just so you know, it's not, a, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Because all of this, Peter's saying, remember, remember, remember. We need to remember. Because when we remember, we, we build that habit of remembering, it changes our life. So we're gonna do it, we're gonna do it afterwards. I'm gonna pray though, I wanna pray with you real quick. If you'd bow your heads, close your eyes. I wanna pray, Father, I, I, I wanna thank you that one day you're gonna come back. You're gonna come back for us in glory. There is a day that is coming, a day of vengeance, a day of wrath, a day of judgment. You're gonna come back. There's always been hardship and heartache and tribulation upon the earth, but nothing like what is coming in the future. We rest in the fact that you've already spoken through your holy prophets, through the records of the apostles, even through Jesus Christ himself. Over and over, you have announced that that period of history is gonna be like, what it's gonna be like when you've come back. You've told us all about it in your word and you've told us to get ready for it, to be ready. You told us to trust in you and Father, we do do that. We trust in you today. But God, at the end of this, this message, this difficult topic, I pray that we would understand it and apply it to our lives. Pray that you would help us live in dependence on you every day. I pray for anyone who, who is here right now or even listening online or watching online who has not made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Maybe those that are treating lightly which should be taken seriously. And I wanna give, I wanna give those people right now, I wanna give you the chance and opportunity to change all of that. Maybe you recognize where you're at today. So you're not in a good place spiritually. You don't know that you would go to heaven if you were to die right now or if Jesus would return. You're not certain that you belong to Christ. You haven't made him the Lord of your life or you need a, maybe, maybe you have made him the Lord of your life, but you, you need to come back to him and, and make him the priority of your life. Man, I, I wanna pray with you, but I need to know who I'm praying for. So what I'd like to do is our heads are bowed I want you to raise your hand in the air so that I can see it, because I want to pray with you today. I see that hand. 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 Amen. I see that hand. I see that hand. Amen. Amen. Here's what you've just done by raising your hand. You're saying... Pastor Justin, pray for me today because I need to come back or I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to surrender. So I want to pray for you. Father, I pray for all of these people today. These people that love you, that, I, that you have a plan for. I pray for everyone who's raised, raised their hand, those who are watching online who have made the decision. I pray that as Jesus Christ comes into their lives, there would be a radical and distinct change and they would notice it from this day forward and what the presence of God in their human life can can mean I pray that right now in Jesus name I pray that you'd reveal more and more truth to them and I pray that they would live a life completely and fully surrendered to you and that today bondages would be broken I pray for spiritual healing I pray for those who are unable to forgive that today they would re receive spiritual healing. I pray for those that are addicted to something that, that, that would break in the name of Jesus. And I just pray for complete deliverance in Jesus' name.
In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys clap for those? Would you give it up for those that have made the decision to follow Jesus today? Now we get, we get to end doing something amazing. We are gonna take communion together. We, we come to the communion table to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what we do. In fact, let me just share a couple words from the Apostle Paul, and you don't have to turn there because it's gonna be really brief. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 25. It says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You don't have to be a member of New Heights Church in order to take communion, but you do have to be a believer. You have had to have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ in order to participate in communion. So, and, and some people always ask me, uh, what's the age? How old do you have to be? You know, if your child's given their life to Jesus and they understand it, then they can understand communion and communion's for them. So anybody who's placed their faith and trust in Jesus, you are welcome. You don't have to be a member of New Heights but you have to put your faith and trust in Jesus. But they do talk about taking communion in an unworthy manner as well. Those that have, that have something in their life against a brother or a sister, the Bible says that you, you can't take communion when you're angry at somebody. Isn't it amazing what communion does? It brings us together, gives us perspective. We're not only remembering what Jesus has done, but we're remembering what he, what it's, how it's changed us how it's brought people from all over the world, different cultures, different backgrounds together as one body. We are the body of Jesus Christ. So if there's somebody here today who, who you're angry with somebody else, there's unforgiveness in your heart and you're mad at a fellow believer, you can't take communion. You know, you can't take communion here and go blast somebody on Facebook. It's, you can't do that. But what you can do right now is you can pray, you can get right with the Lord. And then you can go take care of business. That's what Jesus wants. The Holy Spirit's moving on some of your hearts right now. Maybe bringing up some things in your life that you're doing that you're not supposed to. That's what communion does. It helps us remember. Helps us remember what he's done. And I love that. I love that. So as, as we're sitting here, and by the way, in the original language, this is a commandment, not a suggestion. We're told to do this. Okay. The celebration of the Lord's Supper, the partaking of the Lord's Supper, it's for the believer. It's not an option. Our Lord is calling all of us to do this. Why? Because he wants us to remember. Now, why do I need to remember? We talked about it today, right? If we learned anything today, it's that sometimes we forget. Now, I don't necessarily forget that God exists or even that Jesus made this great sacrifice for me on the cross. But in a practical day-to-day basis, sometimes I forget him. And more importantly, I forget to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all that you have done. Thank you because all of the distractions that life brings, I need to be brought back to a place where I remember because when I remember, I get a readjustment. I get a realignment. It puts things back into a good, healthy perspective. And when you think about the bread, you think about his body that was broken for you. That means healing. Physical healing, spiritual healing. You may not see physical healing this side of eternity, but trust me, your body has been healed. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what it speaks. And then when it speaks about the juice, it's this new covenant, and it's a much better covenant than the one he had before. This covenant's pretty amazing. It says that the blood that was shed on Calvary was shed for you. 
The perfect, sinless Son of God died on a cross in your place. And all you have to do to be a part of this new covenant is put your faith and your trust in Jesus and your sins will be forgiven. I like that covenant. And a part of that new covenant is saying, Jesus, I accept what you've done for me on the cross and now I commit my life to you. I'm gonna chase you, pursue you. I'm gonna live a holy and righteous life by through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what this is, pretty amazing. I like it. So will you take a moment just right now and then I'm gonna pray and we're gonna partake of the bread and the juice together. Just take a moment and reflect. take a moment right now to remember and to say thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you that he went to the cross. Thank you that he took our place, died on that cross in our place for our sins. And all we have to do is come to you by faith and we receive forgiveness. We receive healing. We receive a new life and a new nature. Thank you for the cross. God, I pray as we take this bread, we remember that it was your body that was broken. As we take this juice, we remember it's your blood that was shed on Calvary for the forgiveness of sins. Church, will you take the bread with me? And now will you take the juice? I want to pray one more time. We are going to officially dismiss you, but our worship team is here right now. Our altars are open and our prayer team is going to be up here praying. If you have any prayer requests, we want to pray with you. If you are one of those who gave your heart to Jesus, I would love to meet with you and I would love to pray with you. Father, we love you and praise you and worship you. You are a good God, a merciful God, a just God. Thank you for your word that you will come back one day You're going to come back for your church. Those who have given their lives to you, you are going to save them from your wrath because of what your son did on the cross. And today we celebrate it. We rejoice in your grace and your mercy. Now, Holy Spirit, be with us as we go forth. Let us be a light to this world. God, I pray that this week you would open doors, that we'd be able to witness to our coworkers, our neighbors, those at the restaurant that we go and eat at, the grocery store that we shop at. God, open doors and empower us with your Holy Spirit so that we could share the love, the grace, and the mercy with those that need it the most. In Jesus' name, amen.